the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this Friday end-of-the-week edition. Please follow the program at danproftshow.com, on social media at danproftshow, and at danproft. And uh, the uh, big story today in journalism being bandied about is the Atlantic story by Jeffrey Goldberg uh, arguing based on multiple anonymous sources that Trump denigrated uh, American Marines, American war dead while over in France in 2018, and also resisted uh, providing for a state funeral for John McCain upon his passing. We'll get to that, but uh, perhaps a more interesting story in the arena of journalism comes to us from uh, Andrew Sullivan writing of his run in with the New York times, Andrew Sullivan, formerly of uh, New York uh, magazine uh, and uh, noted to journalists for many decades. Now my run in with the New York times writing in the spectator, he uh, talks about um, this profile piece. The New York times decided to do. He writes the hook that I was forced to leave New York magazine last month because, according to The New York Times, I had not publicly recanted editing an issue of The New Republic published in 1994. The issue was a symposium on the bell curve, the book by Charles Murray, that explored the connection between IQ, class, social mobility and race. My crime, writes Sullivan, was to arrange a symposium around an extract with 13 often stinging critiques published alongside it. The fact that I had not recanted that decision did not prevent Time, The Atlantic, Newsweek, New York Times, New York Magazine from publishing me in the following years. But suddenly, a decision I made a quarter century ago required my being canceled. The New York Times reporter generously gave me a chance to apologize and recant. And when I replied that I thought the role of genetics and intelligence among different human populations was still an open question, he had his headline, quote, I won't stop reading Andrew Sullivan, but I can't defend him. In other words, the media reporter at America's Paper of Records said he could not defend a writer because I refuse to say something I don't believe. He uh, said, to be fair, he would have no future in The New York Times if he had not called me an indefensible racist. His silence on that would have been un- as unacceptable to his woke bosses as my refusal to recant. This is where we are now. A reporter in fear of being canceled if he doesn't cancel someone else. This is America returning to its roots, as in Salem. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Cheryl Atkinson a reporter who knows uh, all too well what Andrew Sullivan is talking about. She's an investigative journalist, Emmy Award warning host of Full Measure, and author of the forthcoming Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, which uh, publishes uh, right after the election this November. Cheryl Atkinson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. What about uh, Andrew Sullivan's uh, experience in the New York Times profile as he recounted it? Well, it's right in line with, as you said, what we've become 1984 here in 2020, and there's a whole chapter in Slanted, the new book, that measures the devolution of the New York Times in great detail. And I speak to, I think what makes this unique is I speak to current and former New York Timesers, executives at network news organizations. They're all talking about 
the devolution of the news industry, not just the New York Times and CNN, although we go into great depth about that. And the opinions are coming from not just people like the ones you're quoting, but also from insiders who describe themselves as progressive and liberals working in the news industry on the national level who are likewise concerned about these things that you're talking about. It's interesting because it's not like they're making any secret of it. David Remnick at the New York at a New Yorker and and Dean Beckett at New York Times. I mean, they're not making any secret about, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tell stories. I mean, stories. We're not going to report stories. We're going to tell stories like yarns. Well, and they even admitted in that leaked staff meeting that was published maybe a year and a half ago after a lot of their troubles, they admitted that what they do is they determine what a narrative is going to be, and they set about to make that happen in the news. And I thought it was a quite blatant and transparent example, probably the biggest one we've ever had of a national news organization in a staff meeting talking about what the agenda would be and what the news would be that they made it out to be. And guess what it was? This was about last summer. They said the narrative would have to be Trump is a racist. Where are we now? Going into 2020, you know, two months away from the election, Trump is a racist. So yeah, that was predetermined, as I note in my book, that was predetermined at The New York Times, at least over a year ago. And, and what do you think about stories like the one I mentioned in passing, which we'll get into more detail on uh, Jeffrey Goldberg's piece in The Atlantic? Trump, Americans who died in war are, quote, losers and suckers. Anonymous sources that suggest he uh, skipped a, a visit to um, visit the war dead in France in 2018 because uh, uh, they were uh, the, the men who died in serving our country were suckers and losers. John McCain, he, he was upset. Why, why do we have to give uh, him a state funeral? He was a loser and so on and so forth. Um, that runs contrary to how John Bolton remembers uh, not attending Bella Wood in 2018. John Bolton, not exactly a fan of President Trump. He recounts that in his book. But, but but even more well, to the point, more to the point, just these these continuous stories now, 60 days before an election where it's always relying on anonymous sources, anonymous sources on a story where you think, boy, if there were real sources that were credible, you would think they'd be uh, itching to go on the record to be celebrated for outing President Trump. A couple of points about that. First of all, the documentary evidence that's come out so far belies, you know, some of what was in the article because it shows there was a weather cancellation, which had been denied by the article. Right. But the thing I ask myself, and this is what I write about so frequently, 2018, so we're talking two years ago, right? And this comes up now, you know, less than two months before the election. This is a rollout, true or not. And I tend to say there's no evidence for it, as they like to say in the press when Trump says something. There's no evidence for what they're claiming. And if the anonymous sources have proven in the past to be correct frequently, it might carry some weight. But now we're numb to these allegations in many instances because the anonymous sources have so frequently proven completely wrong. So you can see it's a rollout of a strategy and they'll do this. They're going to have a plan for one or two a week through November 4th. So this is just the one this week. And as you saw with the article, as it came out, there were ready military officials who don't like Trump. He has not been kind as kind to the defense contractors in the defense industry as they would like in terms of financing wars and spending a lot more money. And all of a sudden, they're ready with videos to post on social media about how he hates the military. And, and again, just from what I've seen in public, I don't have any special insight. Trump usually doesn't miss an opportunity to compliment the military, to be around them, to affiliate himself with them, which, again, belies pretty much everything that was in the article. And then lastly, my reflection, they tried this with John McCain in 2015, and it didn't work. And they seem to be reviving this old ghost in hopes that 
the formula will work this time. And I tend to think, and I tweeted about this last night, that this stuff has backfired. The idea of attacking Trump on everything and making a lot of false allegations means that when something might stick that is true, people are numb to it and they're not going to change any minds. And the stuff they're doing today feels a lot like right before the election in 2016. Yeah. And the, the other problem they have is unlike, unlike just sort of the pettiness back and forth between Trump and McCain back then, the act, the state funeral went ahead as planned for John McCain and it wouldn't have gone ahead as planned without the president's OK. So just in terms of behavior, whatever you want to argue by what uh, argue about what was said or not said, it happened. Right. It's, it's sort of like, um, if you remember the dust up over, there was a false report uh, that the New York Times and others copied. I forgot who originally made it, maybe the Washington Post, that claimed Trump had um, made sure the name of John McCain's father, a warship's named after him, and Trump was making a visit to a foreign land and wanted banners hung over the name of the ship so that he wouldn't see John McCain's name and didn't allow any of the sailors you know, to come to his speech. And none of that turned out to be true. But it's, you know, again, it's just sort of, more of, sounds like more of the same. And reporters and pundits and analysts and Trump's enemies, both on left and right, like to do this sort of faux, can you believe this? This is the worst yet. Mm-hmm. But they've said that so many times. It's, it's, it's come to utterly lack meaning in people at home. Either they don't like Trump and it doesn't matter, or they do like Trump and this doesn't matter. And a lot of them in the middle are just, you know, they're not paying any attention to it. They're not outraged. They know that this is coming between now and November 4th. It's not a shock. Is this an indication of nervousness on their part that it's not the coronation for Joe Biden they hoped it would be? Or is it something they would be doing anyway, regardless of just who they are? It's, it's sort of like the frog and the scorpion. Um, you wrote in uh, justthenews.com uh, about some trends that uh, may indicate Trump has a bit of an edge going into the last 60 days. Well, they are... Um nervous about the election. There would be an element of this anyway. Both sides have committees and people and groups that do this sort of thing. So there would be an element of it no matter what. But I do sense a great deal of desperation. There seems to be a recognition or belief that President Trump's going to win a second term and they're trying to do all they can to spin us ahead of time. I mean, remember this analyst in the last few days, how ludicrous is this, that he writes and goes on TV to say before the first vote has been cast or counted, that Trump will probably win election night. We expect this to happen. It'll be a red mirage. And then when the right. mail-in votes are counted, it will all go away. This is a shaping of a narrative and preparing us for something. And it's ludicrous. And the fact that he would sit there and talk like that without other people saying, what are you talking about, man? Nobody's voted yet. But this is all part of the, the shaping of America, what I like to write about and report on. She is Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure, and the author of the forthcoming book, Slanted, how the news media news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism, and I'm sure you can pre-order though that book on all the normal places, Amazon and the like. Shell Atkinson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and um, to uh, pour over the August jobs numbers and the implications of the, uh, the data that we have now in terms of uh, America's recovery and uh, consequentially the impact on the November election. 
We're pleased to have uh, some a representative from the Trump campaign. She is Erin Perini. She is a director of uh, press communications for the campaign. And also our friend Scott Shalady, Scott the business guy from Fox Business, Fox Business regular, market guy. So the combination of the two, so a representative of the campaign and somebody with a little bit of more than a little bit of market expertise. Scott and Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. Scott, you have in your possession the August jobs numbers. Please reveal them and tell us what they mean. Better than expected, so that should be good news. We were looking for a gain of 1.32 million jobs, and we got 1.37 million jobs. So that's a, a decent gain. And the unemployment rate fell from 10.2 to 8.4. We were looking for it to fall to 9.8. So another good beat there. Are we having uh, in, seeing an increase in labor participation rates? I haven't gotten to that one yet. Oh, okay. But uh, I would say just on the, the headline numbers, Most the market likely. likes these, yeah. And then I would say it'll be interesting to see after an 800-point sell-off in the Dow yesterday how the market will digest these numbers. I mean, this could go either way because it could sell the fact that we've got these numbers out and, or it could be something. I know that initially the futures market took a little bit of a jump higher because these were – uh, calmed some nerves after yesterday. So we'll see. I, yeah, I didn't like yesterday. i am become accustomed to the Dow only going oh, up yeah, again, yeah. and uh, I expect the Apple to split a couple more times for my <laughs> retirement and for the Dow continue at, to, at about a 45-degree angle. I mean, I don't want to go like full Robert Schiller here, the Yale professor who I think right. predicted like Dow 120,000 by, by 2030. But I wonder if he was long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, although, I, yeah, although the flip side is he also, I believe he was the professor also, uh, correctly predicted the uh, tech bubble bursting. So, you know, could be Dow 120 by 2030. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, look, we have in the last 30 or 40 years, we've lost half the stocks to invest in and we've got four times as much capital out there. So that's going to play right to your themes. Uh, you know, there's uh, not a lot of places to put the money. Are you surprised by another relatively good number, all things considered? And when I say all things considered, I'm not channeling NPR. I'm referencing the fact that you still have major American cities and states operating at a quarter to 50% capacity. It's an amazing thing. We've seen a V-shaped recovery in the equity markets. Yes, in the equity markets. And we have not seen a V-shaped recovery in, in the economy. It's more of a, like a K-shape. Yeah, and, and it's going to be a long K because look at the cities that haven't come back online. And look, again, our service sector, which is massive, can only operate at 25 to 50% of capacity, which then would say 25 to 50% of your revenues, right? But they're still asked to pay 100% of their overheads and taxes. It's just not going to... So the government's letting them die slower. They're still drowning. They just took off their shoes. And when we say the government, too, we have to distinguish federal from state and local. And I know this is a difficult thing to do in the context of a presidential campaign for Trump, but uh, maybe it would behoove him to do that. Say, look, at the federal level, we're doing everything we can. But you have to, you know, if, if you're withering on the vine in Chicago, Illinois, then, you know, you got to talk to your Chicago and Illinois politicians, man. There's only so much I can do. I'm so angry I'd go one step further, Dan. I would say if you're a New York restaurant and you've got de Blasio saying no in-room dining until next year, you know what you need to do? You have to have your former restaurant association, which I'm sure they already have, come out with 10 guidelines, best practices, and open up on Monday. They can't arrest everybody at the same time. Yeah. Because you know what's going to happen is either I'm going to go bankrupt or I'm going to jail. If I stay closed until next spring, I'm going to go bankrupt and lose everything. Or if I run the gauntlet and open up tomorrow, I got a chance of making a little bit of money and see what happens. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Erin Perini. She is a Trump campaign director of press communications. And uh, she knows a little bit about uh, what you're speaking about. Her parents run a small business in Kenosha, 
of all places. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, so how does the campaign receive uh, the numbers out this morning and where we are in terms of you know, recovering the equity markets different than recovery on Main Street? Well, bringing on over a million jobs for another month in a row. This is consecutive months where we have been able to bring more than a million jobs back on board in the United States. It really does speak to the strong economic foundation that President Trump was able to build by getting government out of the way, by allowing free enterprise and business to succeed with less taxes, less regulation, less burden. We need these states to reopen. The president's been talking about that, and there are so many ways to be able to safely do so. But states that are remaining closed are doing so not only to the detriment of small businesses, not only to the detriment of those employees, but to the larger community detriment. You're talking about those jobs, those paychecks, those families. A lot of people need to be able to get back to work so they can send their kids back to school. (laughs) So So it's a larger conversation about what needs to be done in order to get America back on its complete solid footing. The only aid package that this country needs is to open up the economy. That'll save us a lot of money, but nobody wants to do that. Everybody's so afraid. Just throw this economy wide open, and if you don't want to get sick, don't go outside. But don't you, don't make your fears make me change my habits, right? If I want to go out to dinner, I'll go out to dinner. Yeah, throw the thing open to democracy, open up the economy, and forget about these stupid aid packages that are going to leverage my grandkids, you know, forever. I, th- I mean, I think that there's a lot of truth to saying that, right? When we talk about being able to reopen the economy, you need to give people the choice as well. It's like President Trump, we're having these hangar-style events. If you're in a higher risk group, enjoy our event online. You don't have to come out and see the president in person. People need to be able to make the choice. And that's the beauty of the United States. And it's certainly the beauty of this country under President Trump. Government's not going to, should not be telling you whether you can or cannot go to the gym, whether you can or cannot go to a restaurant. What they should say is, you need to make the right decision for yourself, and we're going to put some guardrails along the way to make sure we can keep it as safe as possible. And I, in, in my short years on this earth, I would say, you know, exactly what you said is correct, but I would say one step further. I think those on the right believe in choice, and those on the left don't believe in choice. They, if, if there's a, a sticky situation, they either want to ban it or take the choice away from you by banning it, right? So it's that's what I think that this is all about. Uh, that power and banning and not putting it out to the democracy and letting people do their own free will. And I, that's one of the biggest problems. I think that, you know, look, if you don't like porn, don't buy it, right? That's fine. No, but on their end, it's just ban it. Take it away. We're going to take the decision out of your hands because we know better. And I think that's really where this well, thing falls down. It just seems to me, you know, you always look, um, it's like sort of the follow the money admonition. Like, look who's winning in this in these situations, big tech companies and big government. And it seems to me the people who say keep the economy locked down are basically saying, I'm rich. I have options. The people say keep the schools closed. I'm rich. I have options for my kids. And what they want to do is exhaust your options so that you're beholden to them and uh, the institutions in which they believe because they control. I mean, that's right. I mean, look at Nancy Pelosi, the queen of hypocrisy, walking around in a salon in San Francisco that is being forced to stay closed because of Governor Newsom out there, but she can go walk around with no mask on getting her hair done after she screams at everybody about making them wear masks. I mean, it's just the hypocrisy of the left over and over again, and they really keep showing us who they are and what they believe in. I think at some point we got to start believing that they believe government has all the answers, but we've seen, you've seen dictatorships, you've seen countries that allow total government autonomy and rule. 
they fail. It is the antithesis to America. But when we say that that is on the ballot in November, that it's a choice between freedom and socialism, total government control. I mean, Joe Biden has unequivocally said he would go and shut down the government again. He would go down and shut down the country again. That is tyranny. We should not be, we should not have to make a choice in America between tyranny and freedom, but that's really what's at stake here. When we come back, uh, more on the COVID response and reopening of our economy, as well as uh, a discussion a bit about uh, the riots in Kenosha with uh, Joe Biden visiting uh, up there on Thursday. More with Aaron Perini and Scott Shalady. Scott the Cow Guy when we come back. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Before the break, we were discussing the impact lockdowns have had on market, uh, or the equity markets, as well as the job market, as well as the vitality of America's cities. Uh, we're uh, going to continue that discussion. I want to stay on that with Aaron Perini from the Trump campaign and Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business Regular. Uh, so, Aaron, uh, let me uh, let me uh, raise one uh, communication uh, issue with you, um, because I know you don't get nearly enough advice as much as you'd like from guys who talk on the radio for a living. I'm sure the campaign is really uh, suffering from the <laughs> lack of input. But but the, uh, the President Trump saying, you know, I built the greatest economy and I'm going to do it again is sort of one of his value propositions as a candidate. I, it's it's minor, but I think it's major. We built this and here's how we did it, because this is not me or Joe Biden building it. It is uh, the president and the parties in charge of the federal government creating the conditions for which Americans can thrive. Uh, productive risk taking behavior by entrepreneurs, our job creators, our hardworking Americans. We did this together and we can do it again, but we can't do it under that policy regime. We're doing it right now even with uh, some governors and mayors tying one hand behind our back. We're doing it together. Think what we could do if we pursued the poli- my policy vision, what we were doing prior to the outbreak versus what Joe Biden has in store, as you were just saying, relocking down America. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a fair point, right? You know, Obama always used to say, well, you didn't build that. But this is a great American economy that, you know, President Trump has led the way with pro-growth policies, getting government out of the way. But it's allowed the American people, these businesses, these entrepreneurs, the, the greatness of America is its small businesses. It, it's the fabric of our country. The president has gotten the government out of the way to allow small, medium and large sized businesses to succeed. And he's the only person, and to your point, that could do that again, that can keep the government out of the way, allow the free markets to work, allow entrepreneurs to succeed in this country without heavy government regulation. And it's a team effort, and it's an all-American, all-hands-on-deck thing. I think it's a fair point. And uh, how, your family's uh, business in Kenosha, how did it uh, fare amid the rioting and looting and whatnot? Yes, it's, it's actually my aunt and uncle's business. They own a gas station down in, down right uh, where everything was happening. Thankfully, they were just a couple of blocks away, but nothing nothing got burned down. We were very thankful. But, they, you know, it was a scary couple of days there where – they were boarding up and they were you know, trying to just protect their livelihoods where they're staying up all night to make sure that violent rioters and looters don't come in as they're trying to come back from the coronavirus. Right. Every business got hit by that. 
but they're trying to come back only to have to worry that, that not only do they have to shut down because of curfew, so they're limiting their ability, the government's limiting their ability to operate within a normal set of hours. It's a 24-hour gas station, but shutting down because of curfew costs them money, but then the cost of having to provide security, the cost of everything involved in coming back from coronavirus, it's, it's just been really difficult. But thankfully, you know, the business remains intact and, and, and they'll get back on their feet. Well, there's another thing that you've kind of thinly touched there, and that's some of these governors, regardless of the president, are almost like hurting their own constituents to 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 prove a point. Almost like to, we're going to run our economy into the ground here to prove that you're you're not worthy, right? And it's it's like uh, Margaret Thatcher said this about forty years ago in Parliament. You know, the left will gladly make themselves they'll make the poor poorer as long as the rich are less rich. And it just feels like that with some of these governors about how they're opening up the, their economies. And I, I just don't understand, like you said, your aunt and uncle, small business people. What if they owned a restaurant and they couldn't have indoor dining until next year? Who can stay alive with that? What are they thinking? I, and but the next state over, you can do it. Is that my America? So I think some of these governors are, have got a lot to answer for uh, because they've, they're actually hurting. It seems to me that they're hurting their own constituents to prove a point to the president. I mean, that's right. I, I think there is some politics playing into it. I mean, you look at Tony Evers, the governor of Wisconsin. He didn't want the president to come to Kenosha to talk about rebuilding and making sure resources were available. And then the president comes and he offers a million dollars to the local uh, police department. He offered for over $40 million in funding for Wisconsin uh, statewide safety measures and $4 million for Kenosha small businesses to rebuild. But Tony Evers was playing politics and trying to keep the president out. I mean, you look at the New Jersey governor, he won't allow in-state dining and people to open their restaurants. So he goes into Pennsylvania and gets a photo of him taken there eating in a restaurant. It's unbelievable. Amazing. Amazing. Right. The uh, rules for the but not for me culture. Uh, And that's that's the ruling class. Uh, She is Erin Perini. Trump campaign director of press communications. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the show, picking up on off our conversation with Aaron Perini from the Trump campaign. She's talking about opening up the economy, but more generally about COVID and uh, the picture starting to fill in and uh, rebellions starting to happen. For example, under pressure, the state of Michigan is reversing course and moving high school football from the spring back to the fall. Just for example, I mean, and that's a state governed by, you know, as bad a governor as there is in this country, Gretchen Whitmer. Also, the costs associated with the lockdown policies, as anticipated, but as not reported. More studies coming out on those costs. For example, Journal of the American Medical Association 
published a study, including a nationally representative survey of more than 1,400 respondents taken earlier this this year, which found 28% of the respondents reported symptoms of depression. That data, compared to an earlier study of uh, res- uh, that was done in 2017 and 2018, finding only 9% of respondents reporting symptoms of depression. So a threefold increase over pre-COVID levels of depression, symptoms of depression, uh, as opposed to post-COVID and post-lockdown symptoms of depression. And by the way, uh, the uh, lead researcher, co-author of the study, said, we were surprised at the high levels of depression. These rates were higher than what we've seen in the general population after other large-scale traumas like September 11th and Hurricane Katrina. Also, the study finding low income status was strongly correlated with higher rates of depression. 47% of people with a household income of less than $20,000 said they experienced symptoms of depression. 41% of people with household savings under 5000 said the same. Again, the lead researcher, people with lower income were twice as likely to have depression, and people with the same income but who had less savings were one and a half times more likely to have depression. So again, lives versus lives, and particularly lives of those less able to weather the economic destruction inflicted by the shutdowns. More arguments as it pertains to testing. Yes, the science is not settled on that either. PCR testing, Fauci tells us, yeah, we got to figure some things out, but just uh, hold the phone and wait for a vaccine to be delivered until we do. Our friend, uh, well, both friends of the show, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, medical doctor, Martin Kaldorf, we had on the show yesterday, Harvard Medical School professor. The case against COVID tests for the young and the healthy. There is little purpose in using tests to check asymptomatic children to see if it's safe for them to come to school, they write. When children are infected, most are asymptomatic, and the mortality risk is lower than that of the flu. While adult-to-adult and adult-to-child transmission is common, child-to-adult transmission isn't. Children thus pose minimal risk to their teachers. If a child has a cough or any nose or other respiratory symptoms, he should stay home. You don't need a test for that. And they ask the predicate question. If you're going to do testing, what are you trying to accomplish? What would routine COVID-19 testing of children accomplish? A child with no symptoms who tests positive would be sent home deprived of an education. Enough asymptomatic cases would lead to school closures. Yet the public health consensus is that classroom learning is important and closures are highly detrimental. That's especially true for working class children whose parents can't afford tutors or learning pods but must instead make difficult choices between supervising their children's education and paying the bills. There again, those without the means get hammered the hardest. And what are you accomplishing? On one hand, we say kids best learn uh, in school. We need them in school. It's important for their intellectual and social development and their mental health. On the other hand, let's figure out ways to close the schools. The uh, numbers on uh, depression from a CDC study earlier, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, a little uh, late last month, suggests a significant increase in incidence of depre- symptoms of depression among 18 to 28 year old, 18 to 29 year olds as well. The pushback. Well, it's happening in Texas. Governor Abbott, conservative Republican governor there, a, a letter open. Well, turned out to be an open letter because it was made public. Dozens of notable Texans, many of whom are among the state's most potent GOP donors, urging Governor Greg Abbott to show strong leadership and make sure children go back to the classroom this fall, including um, Ray Washburn, a member of President Trump's Intelligence Advisory Board and a restaurateur in Dallas. The uh, signatories to this letter. Push Abbott. As we learn more about COVID-19, we now know that elementary and middle school age children are practically impervious to it. Even high schoolers who bear slightly higher risk than younger students are relatively safe when compared to adult cohorts. The scores of daycares and summer camps that have been operating in Texas are further evidence of this fact. We will harm children far worse thereby, uh, therefore, uh, by keeping schools closed than by reopening. 
calling on him to make sure schools reopen. Interesting. Pushback Notre Dame. Finally, a uh, op-ed by a history professor at Notre Dame in the Chicago Tribune, Patrick Griffin. The University of Notre Dame is engaged in a great struggle. No, it does not pit the Fighting Irish against USC or Michigan or the Gridiron. This one centers on the university's reason for existing and the question of who we are. The opponents of reopening, college campus in this case, seem to appear justified when the number of infections rose in the second week of classes. Pack up now, a growing course suggested, before we would be reading obituaries. If we were looking for maximum safety, those arguments, those arguing against reopening make a compelling case. And the leaders of Notre Dame are considering the same risks as the opponents of reopening, writes this professor. Yet they have made the decision based on a deeper wisdom than the world usually recognizes. Uh, he writes, unlike those who came before us, we're confident we can control our world and our destinies. Of course, this is a myth we cling to. And the virus has put paid the vi- and the virus has uh, put paid to this conceit. It speaks a different message. It whispers the dread word mortality in our ears. The coronavirus reminds us that we cannot escape the human condition. It warns us that maybe we are not that different from those who came before us. Even as we think we can evade or squelch COVID-19, the virus suggests otherwise. At Notre Dame, we've confronted the Civil War, the Spanish flu, two world wars. Our forebears have dealt with more than this. They came to campus in the era of polio, and before we had antibiotics, they assumed and accepted that life entailed risks, just like learning and growing did. They took them on. Today we are faced with such a moment, only now we don't have the conceptual weapons of those who came before us. Notre Dame is saying, come nonetheless. The young and the healthy have a t- tiny chance of failing, of falling seriously ill, as we've discussed, as has been substantial, I mean, just overwhelmingly documented, really. That minimal risk they run and nearly all are taking eagerly is a small price to pay for the experience of bravely confronting life's realities. This is not to be foolish, but we would be foolish to think we can wait out a virus. We will reckon with it sooner or later. All we have is the now, whether of our choosing or not. He ends on an optimistic note. The curse of our age may well be a means of our redemption, and this paradox goes to the heart of the struggle in which we're engaged. We can no more beat a virus than we can change the human condition, but we can't confront both courageously. At Notre Dame, this has been and should be why we teach. The reason for existing and the question of who we are. Yeah, that seems like a question not enough people are reflecting upon, particularly those that blithely promote knee-jerk, draconian lockdown policies, both with respect to our economy and critical institutions like K-12 school systems, as well as higher education. This is Dan Prof. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, the battle has been joined. If it's good enough for uh, Antifa, it's good enough for Pelosi protesters, although in this case, um, clever, peaceful protesters, not thugs vandalizing and uh, otherwise engaged in violence outside of the homes of public officials. A a group of protesters gathering outside Nancy Pelosi's house, close as they could get, hanging hair dryers and curlers in her trees. That's good stuff. And uh, one woman took the uh, bullhorn and had this to offer. I want to say one word about the young woman with two children who's a single mom who has lost her salon now. 
because of six months of lockdown by Nancy Pelosi and Mayor London Breed, her enabler, the mayor of San Francisco. This woman has no way of making money. And so what does Nancy Pelosi do? She goes on the attack. Not only does she go on the attack, she goes after this woman personally with her daughter, Christine, her lawyer, her flax, all these people who are now trying to destroy her reputation. Is this the way women treat women? I don't think so. Leaders should lead by example. Yeah! Leader, and you are putting yourself above everyone else. It's time to lead or get out. Well, it's... Uh... I said it's clever and it's a good message too. not just uh, women treat other women, but also how a powerful woman treats a not so powerful woman. The punching down mentioned before should be mentioned again. The media and the left to cry the punching down when President Trump does it. I agree. He punches down too often and he shouldn't. It's unbecoming when he does. What about Nancy Pelosi? Same standard? I suspect not. And uh, in terms of her disdain, (laughs) Really, I don't know how else you describe it for, you know, uh, the common clay. It's not like this hair salon incident is the first time she's been so uh, inside her own bubble that uh, uh, she comes across in a way that she doesn't even appreciate. I mean, I don't think she cares that much. Remember, her constituency uh, has been completely lobotomized by Marxism, but uh it wasn't that long ago. Remember Nancy Pelosi, the height of the pandemic, little institutional knowledge here to remember what a haughty, uh, dis- disagreeable person she is, how imperious she is, really. The height of the outbreak, when there was talk of people and, and reality of people in bread lines and with everything shut down and people losing their jobs by the millions. She goes on uh, the late show on CBS to uh have a fun romp through her ice cream freezer. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, what have you found? What are you going to share with us from your home? Chocolate. Really? Chocolate, chocolate, chocolate candy. Oh, wow. And this is, this is something you can get through the mail. Okay. Run out. Can I show Tell you? Me. Wow. Other people in our family go for some other flavors, but chocolate, and then we have some other chocolate here. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, uh, Nanny P, woman of the people. This is Dan Proud. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com. Podcasts are there. Uh, value-added content above and beyond the show and on social media at Dan Proft Show. Uh, Joe Biden in Kenosha yesterday visiting with uh, the Blake family members as well as other members of the community having sort of an impromptu community meeting at Grace Lutheran Church there, at which he said, among other things, uh, this... I can't understand what it's like to walk out the door or send my son out the door or my daughter and worry about just because they're black, they may not come back. I can't really, I I, I can intellectually understand it, 
but I can't, I can't feel it. Mm-hmm. For um, reaction to that and uh, much, much more, we're pleased to be joined again by Glenn Lowry, who is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences, Department of Economics at Brown University. Professor Lowry, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, uh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, how, how do you uh, hear that statement from Joe Biden? Is that am I wrong to suggest that when he talks about I, I can't know what it feels like to send a, a black a son or daughter out and feel like they're not going to come home, that he's advancing this notion that um, black people are being targeted by police? I think it's ridiculous. Uh, I, I think it's pandering. I think it's offensive. Really? If you're black, you're afraid to go out of your house? The police might gun you down. He doesn't believe that. I don't believe he believes that. I think he's saying that because he's trying to get black people to vote for him. And I think that kind of pandering is an insult to the intelligence of black people. Unfortunately, it works, but it's still patronizing. Mm-hmm. And um, something else, just one other clip I wanted to play, and then we can get into a deeper discussion and move past Joe Biden. But I think it's emblematic of an approach to talking about race and and for people of different races trying to interact when there's so much guilt being ladled out. Uh, Biden talking about his conversation with Jacob Blake uh, from Jacob Blake's hospital bed, you know, by phone. He talked about how nothing was going to defeat him, how... Whether he walked again or not, he was not going to give up. We talked about a psalm in my ch- our church, Father, based on the 23rd psalm. May he raise you up on eagle's wings and bear you on the breath of dawn until we and ho- keep you in God, hold you in the palm of his hand that we meet again. Well, um, I think, Alderman, what's been unleashed with a lot of people is they understand that... Um, Fear doesn't solve problems. Only hope does. And if you keep, if you give up hope, you might as well surrender. Uh, it strikes me as a bit of a cheap impersonation of Barack Obama. And the whole of Jacob Blake thing, um, look, I, I hope the, the kid recovers. A young man, really, he's a man. The man recovers, and he's he's fine, and he can walk again and all those things. But uh, there, there's the, the, this um, tendency to just sort of gloss over the circumstances in under which Jacob Blake was shot. Whether you think it was a good police shooting or not, Jacob Blake has some problems. He's alleged to have done some very bad things, and he's treated as somebody who is like overcome or is, a, is going to overcome an, an affliction that he had nothing to do with. Yeah, this is not a, a new story. This is a very familiar story, isn't it? These incidents, uh, which I should point out, are relatively few, given that we have a country of 300 million people, and that we have tens of thousands of encounters between police officers and citizens on a daily basis. But these, inc- these incidents, and moreover, given that they occur in a context where the victim is to some degree implicated in what happens in their interactions with the police officers. These incidents are uh, narrated as if they were racial incidents. I don't know that they were racial at all. I don't know that the fact that the man was black had very much at all to do with it. Moreover, you're not supposed to talk about the previous history of the purported victim that he's encounters with the police. So they will say, what does that have to do with anything? But of course, the behavior that the individual exhibits when interacting with the police has a great deal to do with the outcome of that interaction. If you don't resist arrest, if you don't attack the police officer, if you don't act in ways that uh, 
to induce fear in the police officer, you don't get these necessarily get these outcomes. Now, I'm not making an excuse for bad policing, but I'm saying this thing is getting out of hand. And people are using this as an excuse to vent uh, frustration and anger with a system which, you know, when you view it in, uh, in context, actually is been pretty good for most Americans of every race and creed. Well, and, and, and this seems like a pedestrian point to make and to make repeatedly, but I, I sort of feel compelled to do it. I, I, I mean, again, black families in America, their attitude toward police, the Gallup poll that came out just a few weeks ago, 80 percent of black Americans want the same or more police presence in their neighborhood. I mean, that is just completely at odds with the uh, center of gravity that in terms of media reporting about uh, police and about defunding police in terms of where black families say they are with respect to policing. Well, people who are living in these communities where there's a high rate of violence and there's a lot of uh, gun circulating and there's gang activity and there are uh, dangerous young men on the streets, people who fear to go out of their houses after dark or worried that somebody's going to break in and take their things or that their kid is going to get shot dead by some violent thug on their way to the corner to the grocery store, they don't have any recourse but to rely on the police. It's really a luxury good to talk about getting rid of the cops. It's something that you can afford when you can place yourself in a neighborhood or a community where those kinds of threats don't trouble you on a daily basis. But ordinary people possessed of common sense know that while there can be some issues, and there are some issues uh, with policing, on the whole, security of property and person is the first order of business of the government, and the police are the primary instrument through which that is secured. In uh, an interview you gave to uh, our fr- a friend of this show, too, Brendan O'Neill over at Spike Magazine, Spiked Online, yeah, you uh, said that we're playing with fire when we racialize everything. Well, that that's certainly happening. We're racializing everything. Everything is forced through the prism of race and what do you mean when you say we're playing with fire and doing that? I've been given to say of late that I think people are engaged in a massive bluff who play this race card constantly, who take every one of these incidents, and the first thing they say is, white police officer, black unarmed man. The reason I think they're bluffing is that they're daring people to take a close look at the racial dimensions of crime statistics. They're daring people to observe that blacks are vastly overrepresented among those people who commit violent crimes. They are, if they form as a mob out in front of a courthouse, metaphorically speaking, in order to demand justice, meaning that a police officer be charged and convicted. What happens when mobs form outside of courthouses demanding justice because a black criminal has violated a white person? We don't want to live in that world. People commit crimes. Some people are victimized by crimes. Their race hardly matters. If a police officer acts badly and the person against whom he acts is uh, black, the race hardly matters. Once you open this Pandora's box of racializing interactions between the police officer and the citizen, you invite a subterranean conversation that will get out of the kitchen uh, out from around the kitchen table and out of the clubhouse and get out into the mainstream in which the amount of crime committed by black people becomes a public issue. We don't want that. And it seems to me that this goes beyond a law and order, too. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking of uh, your friend uh, John McWhorter's uh, uh, indictment, to say the least, of Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, where he talked about uh, the essence of her book, and uh, McWhorter, for those who don't know, is a linguistics professor at Columbia. 
uh, talked about her yeah. book uh, engaging in dehumanizing condescension towards black people. And of course, white fragility is about white versus black in every corner of life, not just with respect to law and order. Yeah, it says white fragility, but it's premised on black fragility. It's premised on the fact that white people have to bend over, are supposed to have to bend over backwards, apologizing, bowing and scraping, acknowledging their privilege and so on, because black people are so fragile, so vulnerable, so insecure, so infantile, that the wrongly said word or a glance in the wrong direction or somebody who voted for Donald Trump and is proud of it or whatever constitutes a threat to black people. And the existence of racism is supposed to make our lives unlivable. Biden can't imagine what it's like to be, et cetera, et cetera. The world is full of racism. Racism is not anything new. There's black racism, a lot of it. You see some of it manifested in this uh, words that are spoken by advocates of Black Lives Matter. There's racism everywhere. There's always been racism. The fact of the matter is that within my lifetime, I was born in 1948, the United States of America has completely transformed itself with respect to the status and citizenship of African Americans in this country. It's a remarkable, world-historic, virtually unprecedented story, what has happened in the United States. Does racism still exist? Yes. Does it define the warp and woof of African-American life? Only if you let it. Mm -hmm. When we come back with uh, Glenn Lowry, I want to pick up there and and, uh, uh, focus specifically on the academy, since we're talking to an economics professor in an Ivy League school. It seems appropriate to get his review of higher education in uh, the era of COVID and in the era of uh, rioting and and, uh, civil unrest as well. More with Glenn Glenn Lowry the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences, Department of Economics at Brown, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Glenn Lowry. He is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences, Department of Economics at Brown University. And uh, Professor Lowry, um, this this story out of Vanderbilt University, it's um, really a jumping off point. I'm not suggesting this is a uh, uh, an incident that uh, reveals something systemic other than, again, the obsession with race. A student at Vanderbilt University dock points on a quiz for rejecting the statement, quote, the Constitution was designed to perpetuate white supremacy and protect the institution of slavery, unquote. Uh, Young America's Foundation uh, was, was the organization that unearthed that. And, um, uh, and here, you know, the, this combined with the, the story out about the, uh, the uh, I would term her, the Rachel Dolezal, professor of black history at George Washington University, this woman named Jessica Krug, who was, is a white Jewish woman who had been, pretending to be black uh, throughout her career in academia and just outed herself and suggested that she be canceled. Um, I mean, it's just, it's the, the theater, <laughs> it's, it's becoming theater of the absurd if it, if it, we weren't already there, but I wonder uh, what you think that says about the state of the Academy when it comes to a classical uh, liberal arts education and even an education that's more focused in the hard sciences it doesn't seem any area of study is insulated from this. I wouldn't give up on our universities. They're, they're precious and vitally uh, important institutions. Um, 
I wouldn't give up, but I think it's time to sound an alarm. There are definitely some problems. The first problem I would identify is the virtual unanimity of opinion amongst the people who are running these institutions. There's very little uh, viewpoint diversity. Uh, people are left or hard left. Uh, so the pushback that some ridiculous statement like the one that I think you just said, which is you get a, a, a demerit. Yeah. Points if, if, you, right, yeah. if you reject the claim that the Constitution was designed to perpetuate, et cetera, um, this, this kind of idea, there's just very little pushback against that within the halls of, uh, of academia. And I, I, uh, I don't know the answer to the problem, but I think I understand the broad, uh, you know, scope of the problem, uh, which is a debatable, um, you know, clearly debatable propositions end up getting, uh, accepted as if they were, um, as if they were beyond question. Yeah. Uh, the sciences, yes. I mean, even in economics, I've, Notice that uh, the uh, uh, American Economics Association, some of the uh, official pronouncements from uh, the economics profession have uh, been, you know, tailored to be acceptable in this moment of, of uh, you know, anti-racism uh, hysteria. Um, and uh, the uh, curriculum in some of the science uh, uh, disciplines is being pressured to accommodate diversity concerns when it's not obvious that they're relevant to uh, the work at hand. Um, th th this is a concern. This is a real concern. But but there's a lot of good stuff going on in the universities too. I guess I have to say that that's where I that's where I butter my bread. Uh, there is there is still it's still possible to get an education, a really good education in uh, leading universities in this country. But you have to work at it. Yeah, you know it's interesting you say that because I I'm I'm sort of a cynic on I'm sort of skeptical, but at the same time. The Wall Street Journal does this future view column every week, and it asks uh, kids, college kids, to respond to a particular question. And you, and, and it's you know across the viewpoints in terms of uh, uh, Trump's strongest message or how you think your schools are responding to COVID or whatever it is. Um, but all, the answers are always thoughtful, and it represents a different a cross section of students in different areas of study from around the country. And you get to you start to get critical mass over several weeks of columns like this. And so you see, there actually are some thoughtful young people on these college campuses. Maybe, maybe more so than thoughtful adults on the college campuses. Yeah, there are. I've been very fortunate at Brown to have uh, cultivated uh, good relationships, uh, mentor mentee type relationships with a handful of. Uh, very uh, talented students. Uh, some of them have been black, some of them have been Jewish, some of them have been Asian, uh, et cetera. Um, I, I don't, uh, you know, discriminate, <laughs> discriminate in my making myself available to students. And, and uh, uh, you know, I've found people who are willing to work 20 hours a day and who have read everything and who are just as smart as they could possibly be and who are open-minded and whatnot. And uh, this goes on. Uh, but there is uh, a lot of political correctness and, and a lot of silliness, uh, I think, uh, that is also going on. Uh, yeah, Plato um, said uh, every state needs a founding myth to give its citizens a shared tradition and purpose. Um, I, founding myth is sort of my pejorative on it, but, uh, you know, founding idea and our story. And ours was the Constitution. I know you're very much involved in the 1776 effort with uh, our mutual friend Bob Woodson. I wonder if That's you're, I, and I wonder if you're worried at all that with the left's control of these cultural and educational institutions, including higher ed, that um, uh, America 2.0 that they're trying to bring about, 
uh, would be the 1619 Project, and which is making its way into schools at every level as we speak. Well, that's what motivated Bob Woodson, a good friend of mine, for 35 years to launch the 1776 Unites um, project as a reaction against what we think would be the far-reaching cultural influence of the New York Times, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 project. And this characterization of the American founding as being a wink and a nod at slavery, the country didn't believe its own founding ideals. It was only African-American struggle over centuries that caused those ideals to be realized. And this is so profoundly wrong-headed. It is, you know, emblematic of our times. But we, at 1776, and we're not alone, uh, think it's profoundly wrong-headed. I mean, the first thing I would want to say is, and at the end of the 18th century, when the, the republic that we enjoy the benefits of right now, the United States of America, was founded, what happened was ideals about the rights of individuals and the way in which ordered liberty could be secured through real political institutions got translated into reality, called the United States of America, the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Slavery existed at that time, that's true. By the way, slavery had existed for thousands of years leading up to that time. There was nothing new about slavery. What was new was abolition. What was new was getting rid of slavery, the idea that slavery was wrong. That idea also got realized here in the United States of America within a century of the founding of the country through a bloody and awful civil war that created the reality of African-American citizenship. Equal citizenship? No, no, not at first. But again, in the fullness of time, equal citizenship. I defy you to find another country, any place on the planet, in which a racially defined serfdom moved from the condition of chattel to president of the United States. I mean, within two or three lifetimes, it's just, it, it, it hasn't happened anywhere. So the ideas that were motivating the founding of the country animated political processes that actually produced freedom. This is the fruit of the Enlightenment. This is the consequence of a different way of looking at the relationship between individuals and their government. It's a revolutionary idea that has swept the world. We African-Americans are the heirs of that legacy. So I, I think there's something uh, very, very subversively problematic about showing all of that out, uh, acting as if the people who were alive 250 years ago ought to have the same sensibility that animates us today, when in fact what they did was make possible the country that we enjoy today. He is Glenn Lowry, the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences, Department of Economics at Brown University. Professor Lowry, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Building off our conversation with uh, Brown University econ professor Glenn Lowry about uh, Joe Biden's racial pandering in Kenosha and the Democrat Party's, Democrat Socialist Party's general disposition to force feed everything through a racial prism. You have big city mayors doing that, of course, in one breath and then in the next demanding uh, more money from President Trump's uh, federal government, uh, more money from the federal government at President Trump's direction, I suppose is probably a better way to say it, post haste 
Here's uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, one of the more outspoken Democrat socialists over the last several months in uh, being critical of President Trump, telling President Trump to go make love to himself, for example. Very interesting. She has a very interesting way of asking for help, doesn't she? Federal government simply must step up and support our cities and states with additional stimulus dollars critically needed by our families and businesses. We are in a crisis unlike anything experienced in our lifetimes. This should not be up for debate. I know this is a campaign season, but this is not a red versus blue state issue. This is a calamitous financial crisis, bipartisan in its impact, and we need a bipartisan solution. We cannot let the policymakers in Washington, D.C. fiddle while our country burns. Uh, Okay, I love the Nero reference and the uh, Burt Bacharach at... uh accompanying that speech, apparently. Uh, Lori Lightfoot also threatening President Trump. Again, an interesting way to ask for assistance. We will see him in court, and we will win, and when we win, we will make him pay for what his foolishness has brought to the city of Chicago. Uh, Responding to the prospect of defunding lawless cities like Chicago, the way Andrew Cuomo did the other day, as we discussed on this show, suggesting Trump is hated, he's responsible for everything that's wrong with New York and New York City, and that he would need an army in order to walk the streets of New York City safely. That's how reviled he is. Very interesting approach from these uh, Democrat uh, socialist mayors and governors. I wonder what that says about what they feel their electoral position is at moment with Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. For more on that question, we're pleased to be joined again by Conrad Black, Lord Black, who is a financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords, Lord Black, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. And uh, the um, the uh, antagonism of uh, the Lori Lightfoots and the Andrew Cuomo's of the world, the demands that they're making, I don't know if they have a full appreciation for the concept of bargaining power and uh, the bargaining power they lack. Uh, look, I have no standing to mind read them. I don't know either person personally, but just to judge as any of your listeners could from their performance and the illustrated by the extracts you just had on from the mayor of Chicago, I think they're in an, on another planet. I don't think they realize that they're completely discredited. They've made an absolute horrible mess of, of the not only the medical crisis, but in the case of the mayor of Chicago, the public security standing of her city. I mean, it's a shooting gallery. Large parts of her no-go areas, uh, and she engages in public disputes with her police chief, who appears to be trying to do his best and getting no support from her. And in any case, there is, as you said, a correlation of forces. If you're seeking the assistance of the head of the government of the country, you don't start out by insulting him, and uh, and particularly not the uh, current occupant of that position. I mean, if you want, uh, you know, a, a legitimate case can be made that one of the most populous and important states, state of New York, and one of the country's greatest cities, Chicago, uh, you know, have problems, and they have a right to expect the federal government to help them. But if that is what you want, then you have to seek the help in a civilized and plausible manner, not by uh, bombast, belligerency, and trying to pretend that you're on record as anything other than the absolute disgrace that it is in both cases. Well, there's something else to it, too, um, that I think is illustrative of the uh, approaches, the difference in approaches. Uh, We don't want your help when it comes to law enforcement. We do want blank checks. Um, And and you mustn't set foot in our jurisdiction. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the blank check model of governance that uh, has 
been the culture in so many of America's big cities for so many generations. That that may be coming to an end uh, here, particularly if Trump is reelected. Yeah, well, you know, it sort of reminds me of, I don't know if you have ever had a young family, but when a baby finishes a bottle, it, it wants it back full right away. Because, But it's a baby. It's only, you know, a month or two old or something. It doesn't understand that you can't refill it in one second. You know, it, when, when you've consumed the contents, you have to refill the bottle, but they don't understand that. Well, you know, the, the mayor of one of the world's greatest cities should be aware that, uh, that the federal government doesn't exist for the sole purpose of funding her incompetent and corrupt administration. When we come back with Conrad Black, I want to uh, talk about uh, the left's Operation Chaos strategy as it's sort of playing out both in the streets as well as in the, the efforts uh, to sort of demagogue the post office in terms of promoting this whole mail-in uh, uh, election that they would like. More with a Conrad Black. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Conrad Black, financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords, and um, talking a little bit about Operation Chaos and something that Bill Barr said in an interview with Will Wolf Blitzer the other day that, you know, with this uh, promotion of vote by mail only elections or substantially vote by mail elections, you're really playing with fire in terms of uh, pushing out ballots indiscriminately and the uh, questions about uh, the legitimacy of the election, almost regardless of outcome, unless there's a landslide one direction or the other. You're really playing with fire in terms of undermining the legitimacy of the election and thus the legitimacy potentially of the federal government. Uh, I I wonder how you have reviewed uh, the development of the arguments being made on both sides as we're now, you know, less than two months out from Election Day. Uh, I thought the uh, the attorney general made it very clear that the, the bipartisan commission headed by President Carter and the former secretary of state, James Baker, concluded several years ago that this was a very dangerous situation and it had to be uh, addressed carefully and procedures and techniques and personnel put in place to to accommodate increased uh, mailed ballots, but on a different basis, just sending ballots out unsolicited to everyone on what is bound to be a partially obsolete voters list. And the voters list is only updated from time to time, and and people in the in the country are moving all the time. I mean, you know, every day thousands of people change addresses, and and. Um, I mean, it's obviously a potential disaster, and we've had, as you know, and your listeners would know, a number of recent elections where there's been there has been chaos as a result of the confusion from this source, and and frankly, the skullduggery and ballot box stuffing and rigged voting that has been conducted by some people. Uh, all all I can say is I I know it's all up in front of the courts now, and I, you know I don't have unlimited confidence in judges' ability to. Uh, to produce uh, fair and condign verdict scenarios they're not personally familiar with. But I, I think at least that's a better forum for it than a partisan forum. And um, and it, it, when we get beyond that, I, ju- I just hope that the Republican Party has as many lawyers and, and as many operators and monitors at, at, at points where these ballots move around to 
prevent their opponents. And I would say the same in reverse, but I wouldn't want the Republicans getting away with a fast one either. We all want a fair election. Or, I, mean, I assume most people do. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, but I think the, the parties should have a, an equal ability to monitor the conduct of the other and, and prevent the other from stealing any of the elections in, in, in any voting place. But um, it, it's certainly a legitimate cause of worry. But it's what the Democrats are down to. I mean, they tried the phony Russian hoax. They tried the phony impeachment. Uh, they, they, they've tried to prolong the economic shutdown. I see another 1.4 million are off the unemployment rules this month. Uh, they've tried to hang around uh, Trump's neck the idea that he's managed the COVID-19 crisis incompetently, but he inherited an absolutely uh, unserviceable and inadequate public health emergency response system when he came in. As you know, testing for it had to be done by appointment in hospitals, and, and the results sent to uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, even if they're from Hawaii or Alaska or the state of Maine or someplace, for evaluation. And and uh, they, you know they didn't have an adequate number of ventilators or anything else they would need. And you know, he, he got all that under control, and he took economic shutdown. He's bringing the economy back, and and the uh, virus is in decline. And and the Democrats and their media allies are trying to terrorize the population with this. But the fact is, if you don't have reduced immunities, your chances of a real problem are something like one in six thousand. And we've got to stop acting like a nationality in the case of the U.S. or a species in the case of other countries, like like uh, like cowards and we got to. I mean, we've got to be sensible and, and, and do what we can for those who need special protection. But as a society, we've got to stop hiding and using this as an excuse not to do any work. There's some suggestion, really, across the political spectrum that the combination of uh, many of the things you just mentioned, COVID-19, the urban unrest and the violence, the prospect of uh, an election in which half the country at least says uh, the result is illegitimate, that we're on the uh, uh, the edge of the end of, uh, of, of sort of small D democratic republicanism in uh in this country, that the American society is going to be fundamentally altered. We're going to tearing ourselves apart. Uh, I, I know you don't think that if President Trump wins re-election, you uh, pilloried people making Weimar Republic uh, comparisons to, uh, uh, to to America today. What about if uh, if President Trump is not victorious? What's your view on American society and its prospects? Well, look, if they see himself as said, if he loses fair and square, if, if you know, if he loses in the electoral college fair and square, then then he leaves office like George Bush Senior did when he lost to uh, to Clinton and and um, you know like like uh, what, what Herbert Hoover. I mean, it happens sometimes when presidents and officers are defeated. But, yeah, but he, even uh, accepting that, you know, what happens to uh, America under Biden and ostensibly Democrat socialist control? Well, I, I don't think it would be good government, and I think it would be a one-term administration. But it, I, I think I think it would be uh, I think it would be incompetent government. But every country gets that sometimes, and if you don't mind me saying so, the U.S. has had more than its share of it lately. Not <laughs> not with this president, but yeah. some of his predecessors. Now, I, look, I, I I think it's a difficult time, but I, uh, fundamentally, I think what's happened here. I don't want to oversimplify. Obviously, it's terribly complicated, but. Uh, Trump is the first president since Jackson, if not in the whole history of the country, who attacked 
all factions of both parties. He attacked the entire system. He attacked the Bushes, uh, let's face it, as much as he attacked the Clintons and Obama. And and he, he, at the beginning, he had no support even in his own congressional party. Jeff Sessions was the only senator who supported him of, of, of the Republican majority. So everyone was really against him. And, and uh, the never-Trumpers, the anti-Trump Republicans, combined in effect with the Democrats and made his life as difficult as they could. And, and in those circumstances, he's done exceptionally well. And I think I think the country's accustomed to him now. I mean, half the people uh, are you know quite enthused about him, and and he clearly has uh, control of the Republican congressional parties now, and and and, and so I, I think the controversy is 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 receding, and he actually is making some progress, cleaning up things that he said really needed reform, such as you know, bringing an end to the, this these tremendous waves of illegal immigration. And, um, it, and it was a scandal. That went on for 20 years with both parties knowing perfectly well what was going on, but for their own rather dishonorable purposes, acquiescing in it, well, smothering it all in pious platitudes of comprehensive immigration reform, which never occurred. He is Conrad Black, financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. I was picking up on part of our conversation with Conrad Black about... uh, mayors, Democrat socialist mayors of big cities in America. Since I uh, played some clips of uh, one mayor, Triple Threat, Lori Lightfoot, Chicago mayor. Uh, this from uh, one of the sites that tracks uh, the police scanners, reports on crime in Chicago, CWB Chicago. Dispatch, battery in progress. Her son just got released from Jackson Park Hospital. He's trying to attack the caller, his mother, and his sister, destroying the apartment. Cop. Sounds like a social worker should go to that. Zing. Uh, that's where it's at. You know, the cynicism of, of cops, a nice rejoinder. But this is where it's at when you don't believe you have any backup, when you're hunting black people, as Joe Biden intimated during his trip to Kenosha, uh, when in point of fact, uh, you're being forced to do things that are not easily done. Uh, we've talked about this before, but in the Daniel Prude case, since that is now receiving national attention, the gentleman who has had a mental break was naked in the street and was stopped and detained by Rochester police later died. Uh, now Rochester police have been the Roch- seven Rochester police officers who responded to the call have been suspended with pay pending the investigation. A civil lawsuit has been filed by the family of Prude. A USA Today reported that Rochester police documents released by Prude's family show that his brother, Joe, told police officers he had run out of the house that night after he had been hospitalized earlier in the day for suicidal ideation. Uh, The mayor, uh, who also essentially said this was racist, the stop and the treatment of Prude, and there's no indication that that's the case. That's the mayor. By the way, the police chief of Rochester, LaRon Singletary, is an African-American gentleman. Okay. Uh, But the mayor, as well as the uh, brother of Daniel Prude, both said the same thing. Yes, they've got a problem with the police department. Mental health care system. 
he was hospitalized for societal ideation and then he's released in such a state that he's running around naked on the street, necessitating a police response. And now these police officers are supposed to be mental health professionals as well. And against the backdrop of this and turning your streets over to the mob and uh, repeating the baseless charges of the mob, you have Democrat socialist mayors having to abdicate their homes. We talked about uh, the mob outside of the mayor of San Jose's home. We've talked about the uh, mob that got into Ted Wheeler's condo building in Portland, such that now Ted Wheeler's gone. He moved. St. Louis Mayor Lita Krusen, uh, who is a Democrat, of course, revealed this week that she and her husband have relocated over repeated protests outside their residence. I ran for this job. My neighbors did not. Yeah. Abdicating in the face of the mob. Lori Life of the mayor of Chicago has her block cordoned off by police because she believes, as she said, I have a right to protect my home. Now, sure, a right that she doesn't afford uh, or would like to afford Chicago residents. And particularly, they don't have access to the police resources that she does. But that's the state of affairs. These Democrat socialist mayors that have given over to the mob uh, coming to learn that the mob will come for them, too. They can no more ignore it than regular everyday Americans can. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. On Saturday, I went to the U.S. Ambassador's residence. Not me. I'm reading an excerpt from John Bolton's book. I went to the U.S. Ambassador's residence where Trump was staying to brief him before his bilateral with Macron. The weather was bad. And Kelly, that would be the chief of staff at the time, John Kelly. And I spoke about uh, whether to travel as planned to Bellow Wood monuments and nearby American cemeteries where many U.S. World War I dead were buried. Marine One's crew was saying that bad visibility could make it imprudent to chopper to the cemetery. If a motorcade were necessary, it could take between 90 and 120 minutes each way along roads that were not exactly freeways, posing an unacceptable risk that we could not get the president out of France quickly enough in case of an emergency. It was a straightforward decision to cancel the visit, but very hard for a Marine like Kelly to recommend. Well, that doesn't seem to comport with the Atlantic story uh, that's uh, got everybody all a flutter today, does it now? That uh, Trump said, I'm not going to uh, Bella Wood because the, those marine dead in France, they're, they're losers, suckers. Oh, and John McCain's a loser and a sucker, too, while I'm at it. Uh-huh. Anonymous sources for the Atlantic. Oh, the anonymous source stories. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Brett Baer, Fox News anchor and number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Uh, so, uh, John Bolton, uh, you probably have heard not the biggest fan of Trump these days, certainly before his book. Uh, that's a pretty different account of the decision to uh, skip that uh, visit than the one in Jeffrey Goldberg's piece in The Atlantic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would saying if it lined up with the Atlantic piece, Bolton would use it. I mean, he was looking for nuggets to sell the book. So that would be one, I would think. But 
listen, the president has said things publicly that have been eyebrow raising, to say the least, over three years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not a hard jump to get to him saying something about something. But this seems like it doesn't comport with what the people at the time were saying. So anonymous source stories, as you get closer to an election, you know, expect more of them. Right. And and this is what we were, uh, Scott and I were talking about a bit earlier in the show, too, is is like, wait, I don't understand this. You know, if, if he said these things and you have multiple sources, so it could be multiple people that were ostensibly there. Otherwise, how would they know? Then why wouldn't these people be proud to come forward and say, this is we were all there. This is what he said. And this is unacceptable. It's an unacceptable way to talk about um, American military debt. It's an unacceptable way to talk about John McCain. And uh, have it out. Uh, they would be uh, uh, heralded by the press corps. Uh, so why talk of, to Jeffrey Goldberg in hushed tones if it's all true? Right. Listen, I mean, there's plenty of people that have spoken out publicly about this president who have worked for him, Bolton included. Yeah. And so I agree with you. I mean, it, at least one person on the record seems like it should be the bar that we all go for. If it's explosive like this, it's 59 days to an election. You know, I, I think that that's it, it could be accurate. But without somebody on the record, you're going to have people poking holes in it, including the president who says he'll swear on anything and take the Secret Service and yeah. talk to everybody who was there. Swear on anything and anyone, too. It'd be interesting to see him swear on somebody. <laughs> to, 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 but uh, I mean, I, let's be let's be clear. He yeah. said things about McCain before. Oh, yes. I mean, in right. campaigning, he said. I prefer those who weren't captured. I mean, that was kind of out there. Totally, totally. And we thought he was going to lose because of that, but he didn't. Well, and the the other thing about McCain, though, is that the assertion relates to his funeral. Uh, You know, there's the assertion of what he said, and then there's what he actually did. And what he actually did is irrefutable. And um, it seems to me that I think it would be more productive for people to judge politicians, in particular Trump and everybody else, on what they actually do, not what they said or what somebody said they said in advance of the decision they made. Exactly. And that's the campaign pitch for Donald Trump is like, you may not like me. And you heard this again and again and again at the Republican convention. You may not like me. You may not think my tweets are appropriate. You may not think I'm totally presidential. But here's what I've done, X, Y, and Z, judges, justices, uh, taxes, blah, blah, blah. And then that's the pitch they're making. Now, Biden's making the opposite pitch. Don't look at the policies that Bernie Sanders talks about. Look at how nice a guy I am and how I'll restore normality, you know, normalcy, rather, to the Oval Office. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I can't tell you my the details of my tax plan or they'll shoot me, as he said in Kenosha yesterday. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't the best uh, phrasing. Uh, can you uh, uh, settle a question that's uh, become a hot debate topic all of a sudden? Uh, who invented the light bulb, uh, Brett Bear? <laughs> Edison. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, apparently, you were one of the people who didn't get taught history, according to Joe Biden uh, in Kenosha. Uh, Joe Biden saying, you know, this is this is a problem. We got to, for example, why in God's name don't we teach history in history classes? A black man invented the light bulb, not a white guy named Edison. Okay. Um, I will bet you a Nancy Pelosi blowout, Brett Bear, that if somebody had asked him, which black guy are you talking about? He would not have come up with the name Louis Latimer, who, who is actually relevant in this discussion, but he didn't invent the light bulb. 
Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it hurts my ears. I, everything I knew was uh, Edison, but um, I guess we're going to have to ask him, but those questions are few and far between. Yeah, well, that's that's it. Um, and the and the decision for Biden to go to Kenosha after he wasn't going to go to Kenosha, even with some gentle pushback from the mayor of Kenosha. Uh, I get why he wants to come. I wish it would be next week, but so on and so forth. Um, it, you you mentioned this when we spoke to you um, uh, a few weeks back about, you know, at some point it, when things tighten up, Biden is going to be forced to come out of the basement. It seems like we're at that point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's going to Minnesota. You know, he's going to Michigan. These are places that, uh, you know, he shouldn't have to go to, uh, Minnesota particularly. Um, but, you know, he should be going to Arizona and North Carolina, places that Democrats feel like they can turn turn the tide, uh, or Georgia or something. Um, but, it, listen, this is the time that he has to get out and about. And, um, you know, I, I think that the first debate, September 29th, is really going to make uh, make or break this this election as far as, setting the table for the final stretch. And uh, how did uh, Nancy Pelosi's um, salon moment this week? And uh, interestingly, with all the criticism Trump gets, some of it deserved, in my view, of punching down too often, particularly with respect to just ordinary Americans. Nancy Pelosi punched down to make this story a lot worse, I think, for her and for Democrats when she decided to go after the uh, the owner of the salon and and uh, suggest a conspiracy was afoot to uh, entrap her in some way in a haircut. I mean, it's just the most silly thing. But I, I wonder if this has this one of those things where you wouldn't think it would have lasting power, but it does because it just speaks to something that is really visceral about how politicians treat people in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think that it has that. I didn't think it was more than a one or two day story, and then she came out and said it was settled. And uh, and then the hair salon owner said, you know, she had it on the books for a while. I've had those cameras forever. Uh, this was a slap in the face to me. You know, it just it got legs, and it it just goes to politicians, especially ones that are very wagging the finger about certain things. Um, I think they they have a different set of rules. I mean, the same kind of thing happened with Bill Clinton on Air Force One, you know, waiting in L.A. at LAX and the whole airport shut down as he gets a a haircut from some stylist in in Beverly Hills who comes on to Air Force One to give him a haircut. And uh, Britt Hume covered it at the time, and he said, at the first, I thought, not a big deal, but then it kind of cuts through because people were like, wait a second, why is that okay? Mm-hmm. And so this may be part, you know, one of those things. I, I'm I'm not thinking Salongate is going to, you know, dominate the election, but it does make people mad. And uh, the uh, substance of the matter with Pelosi, uh, there any progress despite the optimism of a Mark Meadows on a on phase four relief package, or is that pretty much DOA? I I don't think so. I think that they're they've got optimism about uh, making sure the government doesn't shut down, but. As far as the distance between um, the stimulus packages, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of optimism. I have uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin on. I'm sitting in for Chris Wallace on Sunday. Oh, good. Uh, on Fox News Sunday. So I'll have uh, Mnuchin. I'll have Simone um, Sanders from the um, Biden campaign. And uh, so we'll get some answers from the Treasury Secretary. All right. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Darren Gamble to win World War II. And as you heard, 
check him out this Sunday, sitting in for Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday as well. Brad, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. See you guys. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Flying off of our interview with uh, Brett Baer in the last segment, talk a little bit more about uh, November 3rd, electoral politics. Uh, It's important to hear the arguments from the other side, understand what they're saying, what they're thinking, so you know how to respond to those that may be persuadable, may be thoughtful, but are otherwise being uh, snookered by political dilettantes like S.E. Cup. Uh, I know. Talk about punching down, as I was talking about Nancy Pelosi. This is punching down. But she does have a show on CNN, so I guess she's as fair game as Don Lamone or Fredo Cuomo. S.E. Cup on, uh, you know, is a never-Trumper. Uh, flim flammer, uh, as I said, political dilettante. Her argument uh, on behalf of Joe Biden per per a new Joe Biden ad that she says is speaking her love language. Does the phrase love language not scream dilettante? Welcome to Unfiltered from Home. I'm Essie Cup. Now, I never thought that I'd say this, but a new ad from the Biden campaign is speaking my love language. In a nutshell, it's promising to give me my life back. The spot opens with this question to voters. Remember when you didn't have to think about the president every single day and instead there was someone in that office who thought about you? Well, according to CNN, the ad is part of a national campaign targeting black voters, but its unquestionable appeal is far from limited to just that one constituency. That line captures how a lot of people feel, a Biden aide told CNN. You want to be able to pick up your phone in the morning and not be outraged or scared. You want a government that works, they said. Or a government you simply don't have to think about all that often, I say. A government that exists merely to govern and not to consume your every waking thought. A government that revolves around you and not the other way around. Now, while I hear that there are supposedly people out there who don't spend the majority of their time obsessing over politics and the all-caps state of our nation. For many of us, politics in the era of Trump has demanded our nearly undivided attention. That's partly because he demands it, his constant tweeting, the 2016 campaign rallies that never ended, the narcissism, the martyrdom, and desperate cries for adoration. This president is ubiquitous. Uh, it's a big word for S.E. Cup to use, ubiquitous. Was President Obama ubiquitous, celebrated as opposed to reviled by the same press corps? We had to wait with braided breath, bated breath to watch him fill out his NCAA brackets and the like. Cultural icon, not political leader. Uh, the whole uh, you have his tweets. Well, I don't pay attention to very many Trump tweets. Why do you have to to the rallies? You, you don't have to pay attention to the rallies. CNN is 24 seven. Trump hate wall to wall. That's what uh, they think uh, Jeff Zucker and the gang think is the business model. Same at New York Times and most of these other outlets, Amazon Post, so on and so forth. I mean, the idea that a left that is consumed with going from one moral panic to the other, Trump just uh, provides 
a convenient scapegoat because he's the president of the United States and he gives as good as he gets. The idea that goes away with Joe Biden. President Trump is exactly right in his interview with Laura Ingram that we played clips from earlier in the week where he said, yeah, oh, yeah, things will quiet down. That's, that's the promise. Oh, we'll, we'll get our lives back. What will those lives look like, the lives you get back? It'll look like the lives of others. I mean, the movie, East German, East, East German snitch culture, among other degradations and subjugations. We'll get our lives back. Who believes that? I, the, the November 4th, all this ends. The violence ends. The COVID lockdowns ends. The nonsense ends. Why would the nonsense end? These are nonsensical people that are in pursuit of power. Why would it end when you see those same nonsensical people, the thugs and the vandals, forcing Ted Wheeler to abdicate his condo in Portland, forcing St. Louis mayor to abdicate her home in St. Louis, move somewhere else, you think, uh, forcing uh, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, to have a uh, one-block perimeter manned by Chicago police to protect her home. What are you talking about this ends? It doesn't end. Of course it doesn't end, which is why I never, regardless of outcome, as we talked about with David Azarod from Hillsdale College yesterday on the show, I never want to go back to a party of the Rick Snyders of the world. Rick Snyder, the former governor of Michigan, writing in USA Today, I'm a Republican vote for Biden. He talks about his uh, you know, 60 years of being a loyal Republican. I'm going to continue to support and stand up for Republican policies and values, but I will not support Donald Trump for reelection. You know why? Because he's a bully. And of course, this is the um, language of the supine Paul, like Rick Snyder, bully. Bully has become a synonym for disagreement, even vociferous disagreement. And yeah, you may not like the form that uh, Donald Trump takes with some disagreements. That's fine. Bully. Everybody's being bullied all the time. Grow up and grow a pair, Snyder. In point of fact, Trump turns out to be the anomaly of the neophyte businessmen entering the political arena. Most turn out like Rick Snyder or Bruce Rauner to the extent they find any electoral success at all, however fleeting. They just want to be liked. They're transactional in nature, not principled. And, uh, you know, they want the status more than they want to do anything of particular import. The perhaps signature achievement of Rick Snyder's tenure as Michigan governor was making Michigan right to work. And that wasn't him leading the fight. That was him being dragged through it by Republicans in the Michigan state legislature. Snyder argues that a vote for Joe Biden is a return to civility. Let me ask you this question, Rick. Uh, how is it you expect to have to, to have civility with the president beholden to the mob? as he has proven throughout this campaign, hasn't he? The mob is the pathway back to civility, and politicians cowered by said mob. Of course not. Which is why this uh, sort of dueling, not necessarily intentionally, but just turned out that way, op-ed from Michael Krauss in the Wall Street Journal is uh, particularly interesting. I was never Trump. Not anymore. Not anymore. He has weaknesses, but his presidency has been successful. Michael Krauss is a professor emeritus of law at George Mason. In 2016, he wrote the name Paul Ryan in for president. Back then, I thought I was a never-Trumper. Now I realize I was wrong. If the election took place today, I would vote to re-elect President Trump. I still find Mr. Trump's style grating, and I cringe at his narcissism. Some of his junior subordinates are wanting in talent or or experience, and so forth. Notwithstanding these weaknesses, I believe the Trump presidency has been, to a large extent, successful. He survived a politicized, even somewhat corrupt impeachment campaign. He confronted a once in a century virus of foreign origin in good faith and with candor. And despite often contemptuous hostility by the elite press, 
and outright civil disobedience by several federal judges, the president has performed his duties and genuinely tried to keep his promises. Yeah, he's right about that. I go back to something that uh, Rusty Reno wrote uh, from First Things wrote uh, many months ago. By this standard, which is the standard you should judge politicians, the standard, did this person do what he said he would do or attempt to do what he said he would do upon election? And by that standard, Rusty Reno arguing, Trump is the most honest president of his lifetime. So you can quibble with style, but in terms of who he said he would be as president when he was a candidate, I don't know that there's a particularly compelling case to make that he isn't. Again, policy disagreements, fine. But what Trump said he would do, and on behalf of who he said he would do it, is what he has done or he has acted in furtherance of. And uh, that matters if you're a substantive person who recognizes that politicians are temporary representatives of our interests, not cult figures. And they should be judged accordingly. This is Dan Proud. Show.com. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. I uh, want to make comparisons to uh, our representative republic in America and the uh, Roman Republic that had a good uh, half a millennia run uh, back uh, oh, 2,500 years ago. Uh, that ended, as uh, the Roman historian Livy put it, when people could no longer, the Roman people could no longer endure their vices nor their cures for said vices. And aren't we in a similar situation now? What have we learned in the last 2,400 uh, odd years? Uh, maybe not that much, uh, writes Solve Lucia Gold. She is a doctoral candidate in the classics at the University of Cambridge, and she has a uh, very good piece in the Spectator, Spectator.us, American Athens. She joins us now to discuss it. Solve, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Happy to be here. Uh, so, um, you uh, uh, make the comparison I just described, and um, sort of do so through the lens of Plato's reviews of Athenian democracy. Um, make the uh, connection more substantive for us. Right. So I've been spending this quarantine doing two things, uh, writing my dissertation on Plato's political philosophy and scrolling obsessively through Twitter. And I started to realize uh, more and more how um, unnervingly the events of our current climate uh, from our use of social media and cancel mobs um, to uh, the demands being made at universities and schools um, to uh, the current of the Supreme Court, all of these are reminiscent of the complaint Plato levels against um, Athenian democracy. Well, one of them was uh, that uh, Athenian democracy, the people, the masses had rejected the experts. And uh, that, may be yeah. that may be happening in, in America, too. It certainly is. But, uh, but in, in our case, it is because so many of the experts have delegitimized themselves based on their behavior. Uh, becoming political animals rather than scientists or, uh, or or men and women of letters, for example. And I wonder if that's a parallel to Athens as well. 
Right. I, I think that's absolutely true that our, um, our experts are not necessarily behaving like experts, but I think they're not behaving like experts because people don't necessarily want them to be behaving like experts. People are looking for the outcomes that they want, or at least the mob is looking for the outcomes that we want and we want to hear. Um, so we're not looking for our experts to, in fact, be experts. We're looking for our experts to give us the answers we want um, and the political outcomes we want. Well, is that, is that, is that it just on the expert thing? Because this is sort of an interesting topic area in terms of like there was there there was some latitude over the last, uh, I don't know, 50 years at least given to more than that. Really, I think it's actually sort of maybe gone, uh, had some uh, crests and falls a bit. But uh, there was some deference given to the technocracy. You know, these are people that graduated from Ivy League schools. These are people with advanced degrees. These are people with great technical expertise. But then they were supposed to improve our lives by making wise decisions in the public policy arena, uh, as well as building institutions that would benefit ordinary Americans. That's what didn't happen. And that's how they started to lose credibility. Then they turned into political animals. So I just wonder if this is sort of the masses. Just I only want experts to the extent that they uh, fulfill my uh, desires versus the experts told us they were going to create these kinds of institutions and provide these kind of benefits, and they failed us. Right. Well, I, I, I think that's probably true. I think um, it depends. We're talking sort of vaguely about experts here. I think there uh, are lots of different uh, experts we could be talking about. So we could be talking about the technocracy. We could be talking, as I do, about um, the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. right? And the Supreme Court are these Ivy League grads that we sort of bow down to thinking that they are um, experts. And for Plato, d- democracy is born when we sort of uh, stop trusting in experts um, and start thinking that everyone has something to say. But democracy starts to die when, in fact, we allow an oligarchy to rise again. So I think what we're getting now with the Supreme Court is, in fact, a, def- a deference to a new form of um, expertise, well, not a new form of expertise, but uh, a, a form of expertise that we're, we're newly uh, deferential to, and that is um, what I have called in this piece the, the oligarchy of the Supreme Court. Right, and well, and so interesting. So, um, you know, why don't we uh, hold it there? When I come back, though, the uh, Supreme Court, this unelected body of nine justices, serve for life, but there is obviously a people's process effectively through their confirmation. But, you know, sort of the imperial presidency for the last 60 years, let's say, and meets the Supreme Court as now a lawmaking, not a law interpreting body, as I think you conv- convincingly argue. And um, and, and just I, I want to get a handle on what you think constitutes the oligarchy and then what comes after oligarchy, as you write about. More with Solveig Lucia Gold. She's a doctoral candidate in the classics at the University of Cambridge. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Solveig Lucia Gold. She is a doctoral candidate in the classics at the University of Cambridge. And, you know, we're just talking about uh, idiosyncratic things like the end of the American Republic. That's all. Uh, much like uh, happened in Rome, potentially the parallels are a bit concerning. 
and we left off discussing oligarchy. And 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 Solvay, I, I know you focus on the Supreme Court, but I just think about you know Art Schlesinger writing the imperial presidency sixty years ago and presidential power and Richard Neustadt and and um, talking about the concentration of power in the executive to the uh, uh, to to the diminution of Congress. And now we have the executive, a powerful executive. We have a powerful Supreme Court that I think is in the lawmaking business and and has become much more politicized, arguably. Uh, and then maybe the, the third prong of this uh, uh, troika, this oligarchical tri- troika, is uh, is big tech. I wonder if you if that's how you see the oligarchy uh, taking shape in America. Yes. So. I think big tech is, I don't talk about big tech in this piece. I think that's an interesting component of it. And I'm going to go home and think about this more after this conversation. Um, but I think uh, what big tech has done is really given us the illusion of uh, direct democracy, right? They've given us the feeling that we, as the people, have a voice, have a power. So yes, I'm sure that in a certain sense, big tech is forming an oligarchy. But I actually think the greater danger, as I see it, and I think as Plato would have seen it, is what direct democ- what uh, what big tech is doing to the hoi polloi to the people and giving us this feeling that um, that we we all have uh, the right to to be controlling the government directly as a mob and that's what we're getting is this mob rule that has no respect for the rule of law. Yeah, you um, you write that- you write about the illusion of expertise that the uh, internet provides. You know, we're all epidemiologists now in the era of COVID nineteen, right? For example, right. And I think everyone's guilty of that on the left and the right. I don't think this is um, a problem of one political party. I just think that that is kind of what big tech, the, from, from Plato's perspective, or what I say is Plato's perspective, I think the, uh, the greater danger with big tech is what they've done to us. Now, with the Supreme Court, I'm talking about something slightly different, which is um, its oligarchic tendencies, that they, that, as you say, they are now in the lawmaking business instead of in the uh, business of judicial interpretation. Um, and this summer, people have been saying this for a long time, you know, anytime there's a decision we don't like, we say, oh, the Supreme Court's an oligarchy. It's a bunch of Ivy League graduates who are making our decisions. But I think this summer that really came to a head. Um, obviously, there were riots in the streets. And meantime, the Supreme Court was doing this balancing act. Um, and it seemed like Chief Justice Roberts was basically trying to uphold the rule of law. And I, I don't blame him for trying. But on the other hand, it's not really his job. Um, and yeah, that's just, it's not what the court should be doing. Right. He, you, we go from this court, yeah. You're suggesting some of the curious decisions uh, of the Roberts court uh, and uh, really at the direction of Roberts in, in uh, a couple of them was his attempt to govern rather than interpret the law consistent with the Constitution and precedent. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tell us where this goes, uh, you know, again, continuing to channel Plato here after oligarchy of this sort, whatever you uh, may argue its composition is. Uh, and I'll, I'll concede the point about the high court. Then then where does this go? What happened in Rome? Right. So he's saying that we go from uh, extreme liberty to extreme enslavement um, with this little bout of oligarchy in between. So where we are right now, where nobody has respect for the rule of law, where uh, you know, the, the, the father is afraid of his child, the teacher is afraid of his student, um, all of these things that we see that are symptoms of a dying democracy, um, in the end will be replaced by tyranny. Uh, 
obviously I don't have the answer for what that tyranny is going to look like, and I hope that we don't actually get there. Um, but what Plato says is we'll have a revolution um, because people will not be happy about the oligarchy that starts to form in the middle of the democracy. We'll get a we'll get a revolution, and then the people will put up one person as their tyrant, as their leader. And of course, they're, they're not thinking that person is going to be a tyrant. Um, they're putting up the man they think is going to bring them more freedom and uh, a better a better life. But in fact, that person ends up being a tyrant. Not thinking. That seems to be an operative phrase for our time. Not yeah. thinking. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so um, any uh, advice and counsel uh, to be gleaned from Plato's recounting of what happened in Athens such that uh, maybe this is avoidable other than uh, sort of a reawakening of uh, small L uh, liberal values? Well, I'm certainly hoping for the awakening of uh, smaller liberal values. I think, look, we should pay attention to history. We should pay attention to uh, our philosophers. That's why I, you know, I, I, I feel confident in what I'm studying right now that it is actually important because you can see in Plato so much of what's happening. Um, and I wish more people were reading Plato and more people were paying attention. I think uh, on the left, a lot of people think Trump is the tyrant and, you know, Maybe that will happen. But on the other hand, there are a lot of uh, warning signs that, in fact, the, the end of democracy is coming from the left and not from the right. Um, and I, I just wish everyone would pay more attention to history. Uh, I don't think Plato really does give us an answer other than to set up a new form of government altogether, you know, with the philosopher king. And I don't see that happening either. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I uh, right. I, uh, there are some um, some neo monarchists among us, but I agree with you. And here's the thing: I mean, it just it just goes to. I mean, your your piece is um, so timely, and, and Livy's work, actually, I mentioned at the outset, is so uh, timely yeah. as well. Um, despite it's uh, it's aged well, I guess is the way to say it. It's just the human condition just doesn't t- change that much. Twenty five hundred years, we're uh, arguing the same dynamics as existed in the Roman Republic. Yeah. We are. And, and, you know, before that, what was happening in Greece and the, the government looks different. The people look different. But um, I think, you know, what Plato talks about when he talks about the end of uh, democracy is really a condition of the soul. And that's what he's most interested in is what people's souls look like and what's happening inside of us. And our political condition is sort of, um, you know, a macroscopic look of what's happening on the microscopic level inside of us. And I think, yeah. yes, the macroscopic level looks different now than it did in Plato's time, but maybe the microscopic level hasn't changed that much. Yeah, probably a warning for, uh, shot for those who think they're going to perfect humanity through force. Um, hmm. Solve Lucia Gold, doctoral candidate in classics at the University of Cambridge. Uh, I will definitely tweet out her piece at Dan Prof Show. American Athens, uh, take a read, and as she said, uh, start reading Plato and maybe Livy again, too. Solve, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. To close out the week, I thought uh, this piece from David Randall, who's uh, at National Association of Scholars, which is an underappreciated 
organization that uh, really fights for academic freedom and um, for college campuses to be true free marketplaces of ideas. Uh, how to re- how to fight the illiberal left? Cause, cease and resist. How to fight the illiberal illiberal left is his piece in the Spectator, and he writes about uh, the pleas he gets for help, uh, and uh, talks about what uh, National Association of Scholars does to advise and support scholars persecuted by the illiberal left for more than three decades, but uh, no more so than in present day. Everyone who writes me is afraid, Randall writes, all fear of losing their jobs. Some fear that public resistance will target them for personal harassment or worse. My correspondents don't know what to do. How should lone individuals behave now? How can they resist? Should they resist? Great questions. Think about. Uh, here's some advice he gives in terms of uh, a few approaches to consider. Become a dissident. Refuse to bend your knee to evil. Imitate Professor Jeffrey Polvorty at Converse College. Paul Vorty has refused outright to undergo mandatory diversity and anti-bias training. His employers may now fire him for insubordination, yet he will not bend. You, too, can summon the strength to say, this violates my conscience and I won't do it. Think Jack Phillips, Masterpiece Cake Shop, we had on earlier in the week. Another good example. Not a college campus, but the same concept. The uh, approach is not limited to academics either. Another thought, you can imitate the colonial officials of Spain's long-gone and sprawling empire and adopt uh, the motto, I obey, but I do not comply. The king gives orders, but he's far away. Has your boss ordered to you ordered you to incorporate anti-racist propaganda into your work? Say yes. Do your work as you always did and tell your boss that you have been wonderfully anti-racist. Lose the anti-racist directives in your inbox. I obey, but I do not comply. It's interesting. Another, practice quietness. Think Thomas More, Sir Thomas More, the patron saint of politicians. Uh, who was beheaded at the direction of Henry VIII, of course. But uh, Moore staved off that fate for years. Quietness. Answer questions with questions. Perhaps you can ultimately defeat the malice of the great, but give no hostages to fortune. And in the meanwhile, find good friends with whom you can share your heart. Our tyrants seek to establish themselves by destroying all trust, all goodwill, all civil society, all free speech, and they have been far too successful. You must find good-hearted people with whom you can have true conversations, true experiences. We build our free society on such islands of friendship. We can only rebuild it by reestablishing these islands, at least until help comes, until we find a champion for our rights. And, um, you know, in some respects, again, everyday Americans can be those champions we seek, be your own champion. With that, thank you for joining us all week on the Dan Prof show. I hope everybody has a great weekend. I'll be off next week. Uh, John Hindraker from Powerline will be sitting in for me most of the week, as well as uh, our friend Scott, the cow guy, Shalady from Fox business and John Cass from the Chicago Tribune. So enjoy their work and uh, have a great weekend. This is the Dan Prof show.